This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, folks, I think I'm about ready to go. I hope you are. Thank you for hanging in there. Let's ask the Lord to bless us. And we will take up the last seminar segment of this GYC. Kind of hard to imagine. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the provision you make. I'm asking now, Lord, that you'll help us all to have understanding and know how to relate to the information that's being shared. May it be balanced and beautiful. May it be edifying and helpful for all the roles we fulfill, whether we're following or leading. I ask now, Lord, that you'll set a watch before my lips and a guard before the door of my mouth, that you will make my heart sensitive and the heart of the listeners. And now thank you that you have given us insight as to how to maximize effective influence and change or maybe stay evil. Now bless us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, I want to start this segment, which is going to be a segment that I've entitled uh, Kingly Power, Bright Lights, Dark Nights, and the Morning Star. This is a, this will be a little bit, there'll be components of this that are a little bit discouraging in one sense. I hope they don't discourage you. It's just some of the sentiments are kind of heavy from Ellen White in this segment. Along the lines of ministry, there was a period of time when I remember pulling an anonymous letter out of my mailbox. Now, anonymous letters are not really worth the paper that the ink is written on. And if you're not going to sign your name to what's being said, you shouldn't bother saying it because the person has no way to put a perspective on what's being said. If I have a very respectable person come to me that has lived the Christian life, shows courtesy in what they communicate, and has balance in their private world, I listen differently than somebody who's a chronic complainer and doesn't manage their own household well, and you should listen differently too. You don't give everybody the equal weight of credibility in sharing sentiments with you, but when you get an anonymous letter, you have no way of knowing how to weight what was said. Is this an unbalanced person who sent you something that really shouldn't be weighted like they're weighting it, or it usually is that way. That's why it's anonymous. So I had a woman that uh, was the wife of an elder, and she had been so supportive to me for probably about the first 12 years of my ministry. And I was in this church a long time, but eventually we came to a place where what she thought the church wanted and what I thought the church needed was different. And at that point in time, something went terribly wrong. Her attitude towards me soured. And whereas before she thought I was God and could get whatever I wanted, now she saw me as the devil. And I thought, I'm going to have to talk to this person. She was married to an elder. I asked them both to come to my office. I don't often do that, but I wanted to visit with them, and they were willing. So they came in. They sat down on the love seat together, and I visited with them for a while. It was a very courteous dialogue even though she was behaving antagonistically. And by the way, Kenneth Hawk in his book, Antagonists in the Church, makes a very interesting statement. He says, people hate weak leaders. Actually, people don't like weak leaders. Let me get this right. People don't like weak leaders. 
antagonists don't like Greek leaders. Why am I having a brain freeze? Anyway, we'll skip the quote until I get it right because it's too good to mess up. So anyway, she was sitting in my office. We were having a wonderful conversation. We weren't making a lot of headway, but it was kind. It was civil. It was all those things. But eventually it got to the place where we had to nicely kind of press into the arena of attitudinal problems. And she wasn't really favorable to owning any personal responsibility for anything. And I decided to ask her if she was the author of the anonymous letters. She said she wasn't. Now, I'll tell you how I lead. I choose to believe the best about people until I'm convinced that I have to believe the worst. And that's how you should lead too. So when she told me she wasn't doing it, I chose to believe her. And I do think she was telling the truth. But because I had pastored there for so long, I had gotten to the place where I knew how people talked and what phrases they used. And, and I'd gotten to the place where I had heard the complaint either directly or indirectly some other way, and I knew where it started from because of how this person talked. When you're in one congregation for this long, you learn things about idiosyncrasies and habits. And I said to her, well, they, you may not be writing the letters... But I think they're reading, they're reading from your playbook. In effect, what I was saying was, and as I've said in the previous sessions, you cannot not tell your story. And she was so wrought up about what was going on that she was going to the wrong people complaining. And some of those people, the seeds that she was sowing were being watered by Lucifer who came right behind her to water them. And they were growing up plants of bitterness And some of those people just needed one real reason not to like the pastor, and she was giving it to them. Now, your pastor has to deal with this kind of stuff. So don't go around talking to six other people about the issue. Go talk to the pastor direct, or go talk to the elder direct, or go talk to the teacher direct. That's Christian courtesy. Now, to this woman's credit through the years, I have had few people correct me in public, but she's one of them. She's corrected me in the prayer meeting before. And you know what? She was right. I was wrong. She's corrected me in private. And to her credit, she was typically quite good at coming and talking to me. And I knew she loved me. At this point in time, I doubted it. But I knew over the past years she had truly cared about me. A woman old enough to be my mother. But before the meeting was over... I had to say something that was difficult to say but needed to be said. And I had to say to her and her husband, who was kind of a passive man, she was more of the choleric leader in the home. He was more passive. Through the years, she had kind of ranted towards him and nagged at him. And his device for dealing with her was to ignore her. And of course, that only made her more frustrated. And she tended to project that onto me. Not that I was ignoring her, but I wasn't doing what she wanted. And I said to the husband and the wife, I said, if you can't recognize a bad attitude, I was talking especially to the husband now, if you can't recognize a bad attitude, what can you recognize? Now, as we go forward in this segment right now, I just need to remind you that whether a person holds the highest position of positional authority in the church or is just sitting down the pew from you, there's not a one of us that don't have the temptation to go down the wrong attitudinal road. And once we do that, it's hard to interpret somebody else's actions in the right light.
This woman would not be willing to see objectivity on my half. Maybe it was, I knew from my years at that church that 90% of the church really didn't want what she wanted. But she thought somehow if I leaned on it hard enough, I could convince them all and it'd be okay. But that really wasn't the truth. And part of the reason I was effective at getting things done was that I actually listened to people and prayed, our, prayed my way and invited people to pray their way into consensus. We just had a large uh, remodeling project at the church that I'm in. We came close to spending a million dollars. It was long overdue. The church still had the same decor that it had 48 years before when it was built. Now, most of your homes don't have the same carpet that they had 48 years ago when they were built in the 60s. But this did. And you know, there's something about the minor matters that create a real opportunity to divide people. We laugh about the color of the carpet. But I want to tell you something. That journey of remodeling that church because we were patient, we were prayerful, we respected each other. Sometimes along the way, the church members had to apologize to each other on the building committee, but they did. And you know what? That building, that remodeling project unified that church and brought them together beautifully. And I want to praise the Lord for it. When you have the right attitude, you can conquer about anything. But when you have the wrong attitude, you can't fix anything, especially sometimes even yourself until you admit you have it. Are you responsible and are you honest with yourself? Can you say, like I had to say, I can't remember where I told this story, but I went through a period of time where, where I thought the leaders in the conference office above me, none of them were men of integrity. I had some situations where it was clear to me that right wasn't done, and I sat on the conference committee, and I sat on the education board. I mean, I was not looking from the outside in. I could see from the inside some things were wrong. And I can remember on a vacation, because my father-in-law worked for a different conference, I had such a disappointment and a bitterness towards these conference people that on a family vacation, staying at one of our summer camps out east, when I walked out of the building, I was so frustrated with my father-in-law, my wife looked at me and she said, you're pretty bitter. And I want to tell you something, that started a completely different trajectory for my prayer life about me. And I want to tell you today, I have a wonderful respect and appreciation for those men and those women that hold departmental leadership and officer posts in our conference. And I truly do believe, and if I had to live those years over, maybe I would have cut them a bit more slack, or maybe I would have just trusted the Lord a little bit. What does Psalm 37 say? Don't fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Don't fret. Do your part and leave it alone after that. If you chew on it too long, you'll let the pride of your opinion get in there, and then you'll be resentful that nobody's listening to you. And I don't know how much of that was in my youthful ambition. There was definitely objective problems. But what kind of playbook are you reading from? And can anybody tell you, I think you've got a bad attitude? It's a little bit akin to my question, can anybody hold you accountable? What I want to talk about is how you handle things. Ellen White writes in the 1880s that she was about to leave the meeting for Kansas, for I could not see that my remaining would do any good. And Brother Kilgore urged me to speak on Sabbath. And here's what she said. She said, no, I won't be guilty of wasting my words and my strength for a people who are filled with prejudice and evil surmisings, who withstand my labors and whom I cannot convince of truth. I'll speak in the afternoon to the Scandinavians because they desire it so much. She was frustrated after listening some time to the free and Christ-like words. 
Then my work was appointed to me. She understood. That night, the angel of the Lord stood by her bed and said to me many things which I will not attempt to write here, but I was commanded to stand at my post of duty. That there was a spirit. Now, I just want to emphasize that. There was a spirit. Paul will tell Timothy, test the spirits. John will tell us, test the spirits. It's not all doctrinal, friends. Most of our problems are not doctrinal problems. Most of the people that are in our churches don't leave over doctrinal issues. They leave over relational issues. And just because you become an administrator at a conference level on up through the union, the division, and the general conference, nobody is exempt from developing a bad attitude and having a wrong spirit. There was a spirit that was coming in, taking possession of the churches, that if permitted would separate them from God as much as the churches that refused the light that God sent them in messages of warning and of light that they had to advance in regard to a second coming of our world. What is she saying? She's saying that the loud cry of William Miller was not any more important to be shared than what she was sharing about the Spirit. In other words, rejecting Miller's message was a terrible thing and divided the Christians from those that were true seekers in the work. But she said there's a Spirit coming into the church that will have just as much power to separate as the doctrine of the soon return of Jesus did in the 1840s, 50s, etc. That Spirit is important. The culture, the air we breathe, it's elemental. So, I've been shown that the people of God are not fully enlightened in regard to the many devices of the relentless foe with whom they'll have to encounter. Those who should be well experienced are, in a large measure, ignorant of the workings of Satan, and he's taking them unawares. So let me ask you something. If somebody should be well experienced, don't you think they might be holding a position that's more important than what maybe you would consider the ordinary position in the church to be? It could be an elder, it could be a president, an administrative director, it could be a union officer. There is a great grand charge to be made by a united front against the enemy, and Satan has great victories because there's difference in views in our ranks upon some points of Scripture that are not of a vital character. Men who claim to believe the truth I have been shown will develop their true standing before God. What is she saying? People don't have good judgment. They don't know when their own bad attitude is starting to run over Something more important than the doctrinal discussion they're discussing. What were some of those things? Well, she enunciates them. Follow me, my guide said. I was then taken to the different houses where our people made their homes. I heard the conversation and the remarks made in reference to myself. The testimonies born at the meeting were commented upon. In other words, they're critiquing Ellen White. They're critiquing some of the other people. W.C. White was talked of and presented in a most ridiculous light. They called him Weeping Willie. I could, not defi- I could define the speakers by their voices. She knew these people. A.T. Jones was commented upon in like manner. So was E.J. Wagner. These are the two men that preached righteousness by faith in the 1880s. Said, my God, this is an angel. Where is the earnest prayer, the seeking of God with a humble heart for light? I mean, this is an angel looking at a human being called Ellen White and saying, why are these people acting like this? These were leading people. I was listening in the different rooms to the sarcastic remarks, the unchristian comments, the excitable, exaggerated statements made all because there was a difference 
in the view of the law in Galatians. And then she writes, O consistency, hast thou departed from the midst of the Seventh-day Adventist? Now, if I were to ask you how significant righteousness by faith as a message is to our denomination, you'd probably put it high up on the charts. But what is Ellen White saying? Compared to the unchristlike attitude of the people discussing it, it's a matter of minor importance. So what does that do for remnant theology or women's ordination? While she would never say these things don't matter, she would remind us that there are things that matter more, and that is the demeanor and the attitude and the experience of God's people who take the name of Christ and then act very unchristlike. And these were not ordinary run-of-the-mill people. These were people who held denominational positions. It doesn't matter. You're not a Christian because you're a church member. I'm not a Christian because I'm a pastor. And you're not a Christian because you're a conference president. These are all things that you can do and things that you can be, but they are not the equivalent of having the Spirit of Christ in you. Oh, consistency, as thou departed from the midst of Seventh-day Adventists. This is the reason I was obliged to take the position that this was not the voice of God in the general conference management and decisions. Methods and plans would be devised that God did not sanction, and yet Elder Olson made it appear that the decisions of the general conference were as the voice of God. Many of the positions taken going forth as the voice of the general conference have been the voice of one or two or three men who were misleading the conference. There were things in regard to the Sunday work, in regard to the color line, in regard to the sentinel, that better never have been introduced to the conference. The Lord didn't preside in many meetings. There were some loud voices and urgent pressings of things that were backed by all and will, by a will and determination that savored more of the common fire than the sacred. Plans were made that were all out of line with the unction or the leadings of the Spirit of God. Now, your church can be run with sacred fire or it can be run with common fire. By the way, don't take your cues for running your church from the latest business literature. Your church is not a business. Your church is doing business in the name of Jesus, but your church is a family. You are the sons and daughters of God, and you are to treat each other with a special familial favor. But don't take your your directives from the latest business literature. I'm not saying we can't learn anything from them. But the way you take your cadence for your future steps is from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. In this time, the gold will be separated from the dross in the church. True godliness will be clearly distinguished from the appearance and tinsel of it. And this next line is painful. This is the heaviness I was talking about. Many a star that we have admired for its brilliance will then go out in darkness. Is that your pastor? Is that one of your elders? Could it be you? Could it be me? Could it be a conference employee? You are to be learning to look for your leadership directly from Jesus while you honor the appointed men and women that are put in place. But the ultimate sense of what you should do is to be cultivated from a personal walk with Christ. And he may ask you to do something difficult, just like Pastor Getz talked about in the service this morning. He may send you on a mission you feel completely and entirely unfitted to do. It'd be a sad thing for chaff like a cloud will be borne away in the wind, even from places where we see only floors of rich wheat. All who assume the ornaments of the sanctuary but are not clothed in Christ's righteousness, in other words, they've got the outward appearance, they will appear in the shame of their own nakedness. 
every honest one that may be deceived by this people. Now she's talking about some fanatic elements in the 1850s. Every honest one that may be deceived by this people will have the light in regard to them if every angel has to leave glory to visit them and enlighten their minds. We have nothing to fear in this manner. As we near the judgment, all will manifest their true character and it will be made plain to what company they belong. Why does this matter? Because somebody's going to send you a conspiracy-filled email about something that's going on in the church. And if you think you've got to follow it all the way back to its origins to see if it's true or not, you're going to be wasting your time and make a big mistake. You can usually tell from a conspiracy-filled email right away that there's something kind of sinister about it. And the best thing you could do is probably just not hit the forward button and pray about it. What Ellen White is saying here is that if you're a sincere seeker, God will make sure you see where the path that takes you forward and upward is located. Don't be in the suspicious negative realm looking for the dirt on the institution. Don't spend time on those internet sites where they pick apart everything the denomination does. Do you know how hard it is to make something go? In preaching these very series of sermons, I had a person come to my church. I can't be for sure it was this person, but I'm pretty sure. Within about a week or so, I got an email from them. And they told me that I was using Jesuit methods. Now, mind you, if you want to go to the ad hominem arguments, in other words, if you want to slur the messenger instead of the message, probably we as Adventists have no greater disdain for the methods of the Jesuit college and their protégés than for anything. But please, could we stick to the subject matter and leave the presenter off the hook for a while when you have to go the ad hominem, when you have to attack the speaker for something that doesn't look right, sound right about him, you're now off topic. And you're in a position where you're likely to be deceived by the pride of your own opinion. If you're sincere and humble, this ought to give you great courage. So you hear something bad about the conference president. You hear something bad about your pastor. You get one of those emails forwarded to you. You know what? Those people and those emails only have so much influence over you, but you get to decide how much. And if you really want to know the truth, don't worry. There's someone out there by the name of the great shepherd, the good shepherd, who said he would never leave us all the way to the very end. And as far as I can tell, he has no trouble marking out where the path of righteous behavior and righteous forward progress lies. Don't deal in the dirt. Don't live in the darkness. Don't be waiting for a reason to take the attention of the Spirit off your own progress and put it on somebody else's mistake. That's a big part of the challenge. Now, it is going to be clear as we come towards the end because the temptations are going to get dicier. We're going to be able to dislike somebody in the name of, of this theology or against that theology. But if there's one thing you take away from this seminar, it's that your response and your person to whatever is being discussed ought to be like Jesus and is of greater importance than whatever the discussion is. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be some conflict that comes out of it. The Bible says iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another man's countenance. But if you lose your Christianity over a great orthodox debate, 
You can be proceeding just like the Pharisees on your high horse straight into hell. Jesus forgave sins. They pronounced it blasphemy. When they couldn't stand up to Jesus, they had to go to name-calling. Didn't we say you were full of Beelzebub? Didn't we say you were a Samaritan? I mean, when it's pretty bad when the worst thing you can do is slow, throw a racial slur at somebody in the name of Christ. But they did it. Our true character comes out when we get into positions where we don't agree. And when your true character comes out with sarcasm and mockery and derisive statements, what you're really showing is you didn't have enough courage to talk to the person in their presence when it was being said, but you've got plenty of courage to run them down when they're not around. And it's, it's your downward journey into a path of cowardice and lack of love that is the ruination of you. Yes, there are going to be some bright lights that go out. I don't want to be overly disappointed, and I don't want to be one. The sieve is going. And let us not say, stay thy hand, O God. We know not the heart of man. She's talking about the shaking. If God causes the feelings of the heart to be manifested and gives you sight of what is in the heart by the words of the mouth, by the fullness of the heart the mouth speaketh, let it not afflict your soul too much, although your hopes may be cruelly disappointed. Kind of like Samuel when Saul didn't work out his king. God had to tell Samuel eventually, quit grieving. Stop shedding tears over this man. I've picked somebody else out. But it's hard. We look up to our leaders. We hope we may have discipled them. But the church must be purged and will be. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. God reigns. Let the people tremble. It's a call to humility. Those who have too little courage to reprove wrongs, or who through indolence or lack of interest take no earnest effort to purify the church of the family are held accountable. She talks about parental and pastoral authority there. I'm not going to read too much more. Coming together in Christ is the secret to unity. I really like this quote. The cause of division and discord in families and in the church is separation from Christ. To come near to Christ is to come near to one another. The secret of true unity in the church and in the family is not diplomacy. It is not management. It is not a superhuman effort to overcome difficulties, and I love this next phrase, though there'll be much of this to do, but it's union with Christ. She's not running down diplomacy. She's not running down management. She's not running down the horrendous efforts that it takes to stay together. But what she is saying is that diagnose the problem in your own heart with wisdom and be not in a negative judgmental way, but if you recognize that there's a problem somewhere else, remember, keep appealing to people to come back to the cross. Now, I want to tell you, we live in an age of expertiseism, which means that people have large amounts of schooling, which isn't bad, but that schooling, when it gets tied to a particular published statement, can also be tied to a measure of pride and insecurity. And to back away from a published statement can be humiliating for a person, especially if you consider yourself a scholar or somebody that has spent lots of time and has an extra measure of good biblical judgment. It's important for us when we're dealing with anybody in a position where they've staked out something that might not be as credible and sustainable as it first sounded when it was written or said, that we are courteous and give people room to back up. We preserve them from unnecessary humiliation as they change their minds. You know, if I get an idea and I make a pride 
if I make idol of my opinion, pride of my thought, my idol is not going to be wooden or stone. It'll just be that my thinking is better than yours. All of us have to be careful of this. It doesn't matter whether or not we graduated from the eighth grade or whether we have a postgraduate degree. Let's press together. There is no subject matter that is worth being unchristlike with somebody. Even when somebody is breaking one of the Ten Commandments, we don't have the right and the prerogative to be discourteous to them, even though we're being firm. I've had to deal with some pretty unpleasant situations through the years as a pastor. All right, the tithe is sacred, reserved by God for Himself. It is to be brought into His treasury to be used for sustaining the gospel labors and their work. For a long time, the Lord has been robbed because there are those who do not realize that the tithe is God's portion. Some have been dissatisfied and have said, I'll no longer pay my tithe. I have no confidence in the way things are managed at the heart of the work. But will you rob God because you think the management of the work is not right? Now, here's what she says. Make your complaint plainly and openly in the right spirit. Don't you love the balance? To the proper ones. Send in your petitions for how things to be adjusted, ought to be adjusted, and set things in order. But don't withdraw from the work of God and prove unfaithful because others are not doing right. This surprised me. I included this slide in my recent sermon because at my last board meeting, I was sitting there. There's probably 20-some people. And it wasn't on the agenda, but all of a sudden, my, my uh, treasurer says, yeah, I had somebody say to me, I'm not paying my tithe anymore. And it was because of some action by some other organization farther up the line. I was stunned. I didn't realize that the wrangling in our upper levels of of the organization were going to impact us directly at the village church. You know, you may not like every decision that's made, but you ought to be quite humble in regards to your level of commitment. Being committed to the work of God is still a priority, even when things aren't going exactly right. Think of the widow with her two mites. 28th chapter, this is important. Most of you will never have heard this before. I ask our people to study the 28th chapter of Ezekiel. The representation here made, while it refers primarily to Lucifer, the fallen angel, has yet a broader significance. Now, this is where it talks about, oh, Lucifer, you know, star of the morning, king of Tyre, these kinds of things in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. Look what she says. There's a broader significance to this story of the downfall of Lucifer. She says, not one being... But a general movement is described and one that we shall witness. I had never read that before, before preparing these messages. Lucifer's downfall, his filling himself with his self, he's blinding himself to himself. That's not a story just telling us about the war in heaven. That is going to be an experience that's part of a general movement and one that we're going to witness. What a sad, sad statement. A faithful study of this chapter should lead those who are seeking for truth to walk in all the light God has given His people, lest they be deceived by the deceptions of these last days. All right, I I don't have as much time as I'd like. These are all going to be posted on one of the GYC websites, but I want to show you how Lucifer fell. Now, before I do that, just a real quick summary. Remember, the prodigal son didn't really know his dad. The older boy didn't really know his dad either. 
These two boys grew up with self-centered hearts, which is a way to lock the heart down where it cannot experience or give love. If I was a news reporter living in the town, the no-name town of that boy, and I wanted to go report on how the significant citizen, Mr. So-and-so, had his son ask for his inheritance, wish his dad to be dead, and left town with all the money in his backpack or in his briefcase or whatever. If I would have caught up with the boy while he was sitting in the bar or out on the street court corner soliciting a prostitute, and I would have, I would, as a reporter, I would have said, hey, tell me about your dad. Oh, my dad shoves religion down my throat, requires me to be in at a certain time. I got to work. If I would have gone to the older boy on the night of the party when the younger boy had come home, I could have said, hey, tell me about your dad. He says, yeah, my dad. What a pushover. This kid wished he was dead, took a third of his money, because two-thirds goes to the oldest. If you got two sons, the oldest boy, you divide it up. You got one son, two sons, and the birthright. So the oldest boy gets two-thirds. Yeah, this younger son, he wished my dad to be dead, went off and wasted all of his money, and now my dad, pushover that he is, who doesn't really care about me, never offered me one of these parties, and he's in there celebrating with this kid that wasted all of his life. Now, if I were to ask you about the credibility of the report, you tell me, aside from Mrs. Prodigal Mother, how much would you doubt the testimony of the kids? Wouldn't the kids be considered a credible source? Let's jump over to Judas real quick, one of the twelve. He goes over three years with Jesus. Does he draw closer to Jesus or is he moving away from Jesus? He comes down to that feast at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. This is six days before Jesus will die. And of course, in comes Mary and pours out that perfume. She wasn't thinking, of course, that smell is going to overpower the food and she's going to be the center of the dialogue. And Judas says, we know this because the Gospel of John tells us, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us, but John does. Judas is the one that started the sentiments. What a waste. Jesus confronts Judas. He says, leave her alone. And from that moment, Judas goes out to portray Jesus. This is what the Bible says. Now let me ask you something. If you were a reporter and you went to talk to Judas, what kind of message would you get about Jesus? Oh, he misses opportunities. He doesn't know how to maximize good business leveraging you know, he's had these, he makes people mad. He's not that great of a leader. I'm going to help him out. Would you have a legitimate ability to say, as one of the 12, he should have known? He did know? The truth of the matter is, these people were very close, but they did not know. The prodigal didn't really know his dad. Judas didn't really know Jesus. And Lucifer, who once knew God, came to the place where he did not even know God. I want to show you. A compassionate creator and yearning pity for Lucifer and his followers was seeking to draw them back. Draw them back from the abyss of ruin into which they were about to plunge. But his mercy was misinterpreted. Lucifer pointed to the long-suffering of God as evidence of his own superiority. And he indicated that the king of the universe would yet accede to his terms. If the angels would stand firmly with him, he declared, they could yet gain all they desired. He persistently defended his own course and fully committed himself to the great controversy against his maker. Thus it was that Lucifer, the light bearer, the sharer of God's glory, 
Don't miss that, friends. What was his job? It was his job with all those beautiful stones to stand in the presence of God and shield everyone from the dazzling brilliance of his deity. Lucifer walked away like Moses, having the light shining off of him. He shared in God's light. Rejecting with disdain the arguments and entreaties of the loyal angels, he did what everyone else does when they can't stand up to good argumentation. He practices the ad hominem. And he says, you guys are just a bunch of deluded slaves. When you get to where you're talking to somebody who's on the sarcastic or the attack or the negative, and they are demeaning and condescending, you need to know something. You're, you're listening to a bitter person. You're drinking from a bitter well as you imbibe their words. The Bible is very simple on this. Can a polluted well put forth fresh water? And can a fresh stream put forth brackish water? The answer is no. The loyal angels urged him and his sympathizers to submit to God, and they set before them the inevitable result that should they refuse, he who created them could overthrow their power and signally punish their rebellious daring. No angel could successfully oppose the law of God, which was as sacred as himself. They warned all to close their ears against Lucifer's deceptive reasoning, and they urged him and his followers to seek the presence of God without delay, confess the error of questioning his wisdom and authority. But what does Lucifer do? Bold print. The mighty revolter now declared that the angels who had united with him had gone too far, that he was acquainted with the law, and he knew that God would not forgive him. He goes to bold-faced lying. He practiced the work of accusing, of fraud, and of deception until he himself was his own dupe. That ought to make us think. He believed his own lies. His darkness was to him light, and light was darkness to Satan. This was his ruin. Now, if you think that doesn't happen to human beings all over again, just flip through your social media list of people you talk to. There's somebody on that list who's convinced themselves that light is darkness and darkness is light. And by the way, the Bible says, woe unto those people who call good evil and evil good. That's the age we're living in. And if you're not willing to beautifully and respectively stand for the right, it's very possible that you can be Swept away as well. All right, I'm going to skip over some of this. Ah, Let's go to this. This is the lesson that I'm charged to give you. All who do not learn this lesson will be subject to disappointment. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. And there is no occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This whole chapter gives no sanction to the lack of love. The men that should keep alive the spirit that ran riot at our general conference in Minneapolis, that's where they argued over righteousness by faith, over the law in Galatians, is an offense to God. All heaven is indignant. That's a strong word. Indignant. It's not a wrong response at the spirit that for years has been revealed in our publishing institution at Battle Creek. Unrighteousness is practice that God will not tolerate. He will visit for these things. A voice has been heard pointing out the errors and in the name of the Lord pleading for a decided change. But who have followed the instruction given, who have humbled their hearts to put from them every vestige of their wicked oppressive spirit. I have been greatly burdened to set these matters before the people as they are. I know they will see them. I know that those who read this matter will be convicted. What do you need to see in this? Ellen White was saying, 
when they're arguing at the upper levels like they were in Minneapolis, I should surely like to go around the leaders and talk to the people in the pew because they would get it. This is the age of the person in the pew. If you can respectfully state your opinion and be honorable to the person in position for the legitimate emotional strains and stresses of leading in an age of every man doing right in its own eyes, you'll actually get a hearing. And I just want to encourage you, as the prophet saw that the rank and file member of the church would understand it, maybe because they hadn't postured themselves one against another leader. Maybe because they hadn't taken a stand on the law in Galatians or the daily in, in the book of Daniel. Maybe it wasn't their pride that was on the line so they could see a little bit more clearly. Don't diminish the value of your voice as a kind and respectful commentator to somebody that's your leader, be it an elder or a pastor. And if you're a young person, your parents. All right. Let's end with a few pictures and a story. You're not going to recognize this person unless you're a history major of a certain phase of European history. His name is Thomas Clarkson. In 1785, he stood in a certain place in Wades Mill, England, and he made a pledge that he would dedicate his life to the abolition of slavery. If you've seen the film Amazing Grace, which is one of the few films that I think might be worthy of watching, you know that he plays a significant role in motivating this person to his task. This is a portrait of William Wilberforce. Now, I want to bring this to your attention to give you encouragement and proper expectations. In 1785, Clarkson makes a decision that he will dedicate his life to the abolition of slavery in England. In 1790, along with a number of the residents in Clapham, England, he convinces Wilberforce to join him. Now, Wilberforce is a diplomat. He's a politician. Wilberforce makes his decision, and for the next 18 years, he will submit before the House of Parliament every spring or every fall, I don't know when it is, a bill for the abolition of the slave trade in England. And every year for 17 years, it will be voted down. If you've seen the film, you know there's a point in the film when he's walking through a garden with his girlfriend or wife-to-be, and they want to think about something they can talk about where they disagree. They go through a number of things that they agree on, and finally they come up to the slave trade, and Wilberforce just kind of loses it. And he goes off on this woman and is raising his voice and then catches himself and realizes how much pent-up anger and emotion is inside of him. And finally, he says, this is why I shouldn't talk about it. And she says, now we've found something that we disagree on because I think you should. Finally, in 17, finally in 1803 or 807, 1807, There is a bill passed that bars the slave trade. That is not the abolition of slavery in England. It's only the abolition of the trade. Finally, in 1833, some 40 years after they make their initial commitment, slavery is abolished in all of the English empire. Why am I telling you this story? Because when your cause is right, and you believe there's a God in heaven helping you, you can be patient along the way. At what point in time Clarkson comes to Wilberforce after one of those defeats during the 17, 18 years 
And he says to Wilberforce, I hear there's, they're, they're drinking the wine of revolution in France. He says, I think I'm going to go and taste some. It's, of course, a metaphor. But the revolution is real. And Wilberforce leans over his desk and he looks straight into the eyes of Clarkson and he says, Thomas, you must never, ever speak of this again in my presence. There was no way in the world that Wilberforce was going to allow the nobility of his cause to be drugged through the mud by revolution, which was the total breaking apart of English society for the sake of a righteous cause. I'm encouraging you that if things don't look the way you think they should look, be prayerful, be communicative, and be patient. You may have to bring it up more than once, but make sure that along the way you don't lose your own Christian experience by somehow thinking that you've got the superior position and that gives you the right to act in an inferior way. I'm appealing to you to be the kind of person people will listen to. Affirm the people who are leading you. Make them feel secure. Let them know you're praying for them. Ellen White says we should pray for each other and let them know we're doing it. At the end, though, the person who's listened to the best is the one that makes the one they're talking to feel the most secure. The wounds of a friend can be trusted, the Scripture says, but an enemy multiplies kisses. All right, we're going to tie the seminar off at this point in time. Let's, uh, what, do we have any time left? Ten minutes. Here's what we'll do. You folks have been willing to sit and listen a long time. If you want to ask questions, we'll take the next 10 minutes for people to make comments or observations or ask a question. If there are none, we'll consider it done. If you don't want to stay for the questions, that's fine. You can slip away. But let's take a few minutes now, and before we have prayer, we'll open the floor up for any observations or questions. Okay, we have one right here. The first time you said it, I didn't quite catch uh, the full, I didn't quite understand it fully, but you, the daily of Daniel. Yeah, you... it's the daily sacrifice. It's right there in the centerpiece of Daniel 8. And it's a significant, it's a, it's a significant part of a very prophetic piece of literature. We take our prophetic DNA out of Daniel 8.14. And so when we're talking about the daily there in chapters the, the heavy-duty prophetic chapters, it's worthy, of the, it's worthy of the discussion. But Ellen White said it's not worthy of this unchristian behavior. So you can talk about what the daily is, but they were really coming unglued over this. And Ellen White said, stop it. It's not worth losing your Christian experience over. So okay. it's, it's not an insignificant dynamic, but it is compared to not being Christian. All right, any other comments or questions? All right, we're going to consider that means that nobody wants to talk into the microphone. If you want to come up and make an observation privately, we'll do that. Let's stand and dismiss with prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come apart from the busy routines of our lives and focus on spiritual things. My hope and prayer is that the young people, their parents, and anyone else gathered here will know how to conduct themselves when they're facing a challenging issue. And, <clears throat> excuse me, they'll actually make the leader's life better, not worse, by how they do it. I know how it is for me, Lord, when somebody is truly courteous with me, I can go away and think about what they said. When they're in the attack mode or the accusatory mode, it's a lot harder for me to give their sentiments even simple credibility. 
May we have our convictions, Lord, but may our chief convictions be that we ought to have the mind of Jesus who was in the very nature God and didn't consider it robbery to be called equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation and took the form of a servant, humbling Himself even to the point of death, even under the cross. Lord, He endured a number of abuses of authority. He asked to be delivered from it in the Garden of Gethsemane, and He was not. But You strengthened Him. And in the end, we're here today because of His sacrifice. Thank You. Bless us now, Lord, as the most respectable, courteous, and dignified people in the world who have convictions, know how to talk about them, know how to support our leaders, and how to challenge them when we need to. Bless us to that end, I pray now in Jesus' name. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.